The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. As we look at this passage, perhaps this is one of the most uh, prominent uh, passages to where we begin to see. We know the crucifixion of Christ. We know the story of Christ. And we understand all of these things, but I want you to think with me. This is, this is not going to be a sermon where we're just going to hear what we already know about the passage. This is going to be a sermon where we're going to think about how this passage shows us who we are, the world, what it is, and ultimately what is all available through Christ. And so you're going to have to think with me through this passage. So if you came to sleep, uh, you're, you're, you'll be okay, um, but wake up the person next to you and say, you've got to think, you're going to have to pay attention and you're going to have to work through the passage with me. But we're going to talk about the fact that justice is coming. We see in verse number 62, Jesus says this. He says, I am. When Jesus speaks, he answers these accusers, these false accusers, and they ask him who he is. He doesn't give any answers about anything they say about him. Any of the false accusations, he doesn't answer them. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say, no, I'm not guilty. He doesn't say any of those things. He only speaks up when they ask him who he is. And that's important because we're going to look at identity later. But as we look at what Jesus says, notice he says two words there to identify himself. What are those two words? He says, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now he talks about in prophecy where he's, how he's going to come later. And how many know we're, we're about to go into the Christmas season and celebrate how Jesus came initially? He came humble. He made himself of no reputation, took on human flesh, the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, became obedient, and we're going to see here, obedient to death, even the death of the cross. But as we look at Jesus, how many are thankful today that we know a Jesus who is not on the cross? How many glad for that? If you only know the Jesus that's on the cross, then you're never going to get over some of the things that you're struggling with today. Has anybody in here ever gone through something that wasn't fair? Has anybody ever treated you unfairly? So we've all gone through things that aren't, no, nobody wants to raise their hand. I understand, all right? But we've all gone through things. I can see, yes, we are identifying with. Some of the kids say, yeah, my parents, they do this, and it's not fair. You know, it's not fair. My brother got to do this, and I didn't get It's not fair. You know, they said no to this. That's not fair. So we see injustice. Do we see injustice in our world? Let's talk about justice for a minute because, again, perhaps this is the place where we see the most injustice. injustice. Uh, Chrissy, can you help me for a second to illustrate something? And um, uh, I want to show you as we look at what justice is, just come and stand right here on the first uh, turnaround. She loves this, so just stand on the first stair for me, all right? So she's here and I'm here, and I keep going up higher and higher, you know, and she's still down here. How many know that this is injustice? This is injustice. I'm higher than she is. We deserve the same thing. We deserve the same treatment. We know what justice is. Justice is when we're all restored to the position of being in the image and likeness of God. How we're thankful in creation, we were made in God's image and his likeness, weren't we? So men and women, right? Are we all made in the image and likeness of God? Yes. So we're made in the image and likeness of God. Do we have value? Good people, bad people, how are humanity? Does, does, does all life have value? It is. 
What we see sometimes in society, it could be because of social status, it could be because of gender, it could be because of political views, it could be because of religious views, whatever they are, what we see in church, in society, in politics, in our country, we see a lot of this, injustice. We see someone who doesn't deserve to be high, high, okay? Up high, in a position of prominence. I know that I don't deserve to be in a position of prominence, but... Here's the thing, I don't deserve to be over anyone else. But here I am, this is injustice. Justice is when I take someone who is low and I bring them high. Come all the way up, yeah. Even if that means it brings me lower. Justice is allowing myself to be disadvantaged to raise the value of someone else. How do I know that that's difficult because it costs me something? Injustice is about pushing everyone lower so that I can be raised higher. How many see that in the world? How many see that in politics? You see that in relationships. There's a lot of this where people don't understand. They use titles to push people down, to step on people, uh, to raise themselves up to a level. The Bible talks about us not in the church thinking of ourselves more highly than we should think, but to think soberly. Jesus became poor so that I might become rich. You see what Jesus did? Jesus died so that I could live. Jesus made himself of no reputation so that I could be raised to reputation. Jesus took the irreputable, us, and gave us the greatest reputation, his. Jesus took the unrighteous and made them righteous. Now, how did he do that? He did that by allowing himself to be treated unjustly so that we could be justified. Are you with me? We are now justice. We are now restored. If you're a child of God today, aren't you glad that your identity is that you are restored as a child of God in the image and likeness of God and that where he is, there you will be also. That now, one day, so shall we ever be with the Lord, not, it doesn't say under the Lord, with the Lord. What does the Bible say about us and Jesus? That now we are what? Heirs and joint heirs. And what does the Bible say about husbands and wives? Even though headship is the husband in the home, what does he say about husbands and wives? That you are heirs to what? Together of the grace of life. Thank you. Give her a hand. She did a good job. What we see in life is injustice. We struggle with it because we want things to be balanced. How many, uh, how many know anything about, you're a nerd like me, and you know about the Justice League, all right? Uh, the Justice League. Who's the, who's the head of the Justice League? Any kids know today? I'm, I'm playing to the kids, all right? Uh, anybody know who's the head of the Justice League? Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? What are you doing to your kids? You're making them watch like My Little Pony or something? I mean, what, what are we doing here? Uh, who's the head of the Justice League? He doesn't know. He has no idea. Superman. Superman, all right? He's the head of... If, if I would have, see, I know, I know in our culture, if I would have referenced Marvel, everybody would have known. DC is killing themselves, all right? So, you know, we have uh, the Justice League. The head is Superman. You know, what do we see in these people? Well, as we look at our culture, our culture is always desired for justice. And what do we need? We need some kind of supernatural person to come in and restore justice, Right? And we always understand that some injustice has been done in that person's life. So we always look, they're always broken, right? There's always something that happened to them. 
And that's why they get passionate about justice. And they work above the law to enact the law. They, they are outside of the law. But being outside of the law allows them to fulfill the law. It allows them to help other people. You know, this is the story of Christianity and Christ. It's just reproduced in all these different things. We, we, we see that happening uh, in our world because there is this desire in our world for justice. But nobody knows how to get it. Social justice has been become a, what a lot of churches make themselves about. And by the way, can I say this? We are supposed to be people who care about social justice. Church, we are supposed to care about so, social justice. We cannot afford to ignore injustices in the world. Didn't Jesus come to bind up the brokenhearted? To, 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 to bring healing to those that are sick? To bring liberty to those that are enslaved? We can't afford to stay inside of the four walls of our church and just pretend to be righteous and not go out there and deal with the injustice in our world and, and, and understand that we can deal with it in the right way because don't we have the Spirit of God and the power of God? Can't we live godly and righteously and holy and acceptably in the present world that we live in? Can't we do that? Are you with me? We can do that. It's hard though, isn't it? It's hard. We see the injustices. How many know when we see injustice, what we want often is not justice, but vengeance? How many with me? We don't really want justice. Sometimes we just want vengeance. So, kids, somebody punches you on the playground. Justice is not punching them back. That's not justice. That's someone brought you low and you brought them lower, right? That's what we do. We, we, we have to lower the person that lowered us. We have to put them back underneath us because unjustly they've lowered us, so we need to lower them. If you've ever been wronged, if you've ever been abused, there's people here that have probably suffered from all kinds of different kinds of abuses. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you were abused as an adult. You've gone through, all of us are going through difficulty. Come on, we're not going to sit here and pretend like this is all sterile, are we? We've all gone through difficulties. We've all been measured many injustices. But what we're meant to see in the passage is that Jesus came. Was Jesus perfect? The Bible says sinless, without flaws. Jesus was perfect. So there was no sin in him. The Bible says he knew no sin. But what did he do for us? He became sin for us. He who knew no sin. Why? So that we could be made the righteousness of God. Now we would look at it and say, that's injustice. But truly what's happening here is Jesus is being accused for what we've done. Jesus is, is, is being falsely accused for what others have done. And they're trying to stick these things to him, but they don't stick. You notice they can't even corroborate their false evidence. How many know this is the first of three courts? And, and eventually he's going to end up with Pilate, and Pilate's going to wash his hands, right? See, we talked about hand washing. I worked it back into the sermon. Uh, Pilate is going to wash his hands. And why is he going to wash his hands? He's going to, in essence, say, I don't want anything to do with this because I can't find any what? Fault in Jesus. I can't find anything that sticks that is worthy of him being treated and dealt with this way. Now, they have no evidence towards Jesus, but how do we close the passage that we just read? What are they doing to him? They're spitting on him. They're shrouding him. This is, this is like waterboarding. They're, they're covering his face and punching him. They're asking him, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. Uh, uh, they're mocking him. They're beating him. They're berating him. And the Bible tells us, even from a justice system standpoint, they had no right to do these things to him. But who is Jesus in this picture? 
Jesus is the one silently standing in this situation, answering none of his accusers. How many have a hard time not answering your accusers when you're actually wrong? Are you with me? Somebody comes to you who actually did something. Most of, the, most of us, that's our problem. It's not, it's not us having a hard time seeing that we actually did something wrong. It's us having a hard time agreeing that we did something wrong, allowing someone to confront that and correcting that in our lives. Now, that's sometimes what we have a hard time with with the Bible, isn't it? Does the Bible say we've sinned? Nod your head, do something, all right? Does the Bible, we're going to have like bobblehead church, all right? Does, does the Bible say we've sinned? Yes. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Well, at first, we're usually not. At first, we're like, well, not like he sinned. Well, not as bad as so-and-so. You know, my sin was not the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You know, that's somebody else's sin. My sin, you know, you know I'm okay. Uh, you know, Jesus loves me, and he's kind of let me off because he loves me because what I did really wasn't that bad, so I don't deserve punishment. We have to see ourselves as the Bible says we are. Are you with me? Sinners condemned to death. That's a sad situation for us to be in, and it's a hard thing for us to admit, especially those of us have a hard time admitting when we actually do things that are wrong. Kids, have you ever done that? Mom and dad say, did you do this? No. You don't ever do that, right? And, like, the evidence of what you've done is all over you. You're, you're, you're saturated in it. You're seeped in it. You're smelling of it. You're soiled with it. It's all over your face. It's all over yourself, and you're still in denial. And how many of us, we laugh when kids do that, but how many know that you haven't grown past that? That's still you. You still do the same thing. Oh, I'm not prideful. Oh, I'm not the problem in the church. Oh, I'm not the problem in my marriage. Or I'm not the problem in this. I'm not the problem. I'm not the problem. You're never the problem. Why? Because you think of yourself more highly than you should. How many know that in our condition, we are the problem? In our condition, we are the problem. What we see here is that man is created in God's image. Man is created in God's image. Man rebels and mars the image of God. Isn't that what happens? Whose image and likeness was Adam and Eve in, in the beginning? God's. What does the devil come and say to them? You shall be, if you rebel against God, you're going to be like God. Weren't they already like God? Weren't they without sin? Weren't they like God? They were already like God. But what did the devil do? The devil didn't dupe her into believing she'd be like God. The devil duped her in believing that there was a position higher than God. That you'll be above God. That you won't need God. That you will be able to call the shots to your own life. You know, some people, even as Christians, struggle with the idea of submission in the Christian life and, you know, make a lot of mistakes early on in their Christianity and never mature as believers because we struggle with the idea of submission. How many in your marriage you've struggled because you struggle with the idea of submission? Not somebody else, not me. Do I have to bring my wife back up? No, I'm just kidding, all right? But you, you struggle with the idea of submission. I, I submit perfectly. We, we struggle with the idea of submission, don't we? And so we struggle in these relationships because that is our flesh. But really, what did the devil want her to do? He wanted her to mar the image of God. Doesn't the devil hate the image of God? 
I'm drawn to one of my favorite films is, is Gladiator. Don't let your kids watch it, all right? But uh, it's, it's one of those uh, movies that has that, uh, that struggle, the good, the bad, the evil, and, the, and, and all of those things. And what, there's a scene in that film where Commodus looks at the image of his father, and he looks at the statue, and he hates it. He hates it because he sees himself, but he also sees how he falls short of it. And you know what he does? He takes his sword... And he hacks it. He mars it beyond recognition. He's marring the image of his father as he sees that image in himself. It's, 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 it's kind of a turning point as he heads in uh, into just evil. And, you know, we see that in ourselves, but that's what the devil does. He hates God. You know the devil hates you because he hates God. He doesn't like us because we're in his image and likeness. He doesn't like us because we're the image of what? God, the one that he loves. Listen, if you can't touch Superman, who do you go after, Lex Luthor? Who do you go after? This, this is really getting nerdy, I know. Who do you go after? Lois Lane. Why do you go after her? Because you can't do anything to hurt him, so you hurt the ones that he loves. God loves us, doesn't he? And so he loves us so much, and the devil hates God so much, and what's he wanting to do? He's wanting to mar the image of God. And when sin comes into the world, what happens to the image of God? Well, it gets marred. It gets marked up. It gets scarred. Then what happens? Man is expelled from God's presence, right? At the, at the uh, entrance of the Garden of Eden, there's these, these uh, swords of fire, and they can't go back in. And what is the Garden of Eden, by the way? It's not just this, some paradise, paradise nirvana place. It is the presence of God, right? You've got you to grab onto that because that continues through the Old Testament. Where's the presence of God then move? We see it later in the tabernacle, don't we? In the tabernacle, can all the people come into the presence of God? No. As a matter of fact, only one person can come into the presence of God on behalf of the people. They need now a mediator to mediate their relationship with God. Then there's all these men of God that God raises up to be the mediator, right? So they're just pictures. They're all pictures of the, the future high priest that's going to come, Jesus, right? And so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, we have only one mediator between God and man, the Bible tells us now, church. And who is that? Jesus Christ. He's the mediator that ever lives to make intercession for us. I don't know if that excites you or not, but you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The one that goes to God on your behalf is Jesus. And he's perfect. And he's given you his resume. And he's given you his righteousness. And he is arguing on your behalf. You know what he's arguing against? Your accuser. Who's your accuser? The devil. The accuser of the brethren. So the devil brings accusation against you. And what does Jesus do? Well, he's a great... He's a, there's the prosecution, there's the defense. What does Jesus do? Well, he brings the defense in. And by the way, he only needs to bring in that defense and it does away with the prosecution. It's done, it's settled. Why? Because you cannot bring a penalty against a criminal if that criminal has already paid for the crime. If, it's, if he's already served his time, if it's already been fulfilled, if he's done, if justice has been served, then the accusations bear no weight. So what does Jesus do? Well, he just lifts his hands up. When he lifts his hands up, what does that show? Penalty's been paid. And then he sits down. Because it's done, right? How many glad that when Jesus lifts his hands by his stripes, we're healed. By his scars, by his wounds, we're made whole. My identity is not what my accuser's identity is. I am who Jesus says I am. My identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I got, I'm getting to the end of the sermon too quick. I'm excited. I'm like you. We read the last chapter, right? We got it. We want to skip to the end. But man lives in the fallen world. It's filled with injustice and with the natural, uh, the nature of continual marring in the image of God. So we see the conditions. But number two, look at it with me quickly. We see the characters. Who are the characters? The, the protagonists? Uh, the, uh, the, the ones moving the story forward here. Well, we know the main protagonist is Jesus. He's, everything is revolving around what he does uh, in this story. But we also know in the garden, we see the condition of man on display in some characters, don't we? Who's the characters we say? Well, the first character that we could probably focus on is Judas, right? And what does Judas's character represent to us? Betrayal. Anybody here ever been betrayed? It's not just betrayal. Are you with me? It's not just betrayal like your enemy betrays you. Betrayal is not betrayal when your enemy does it. You expect your enemy to come after you. Betrayal is betrayal when it's intimate. When it's someone that you love and someone that's supposed to love you. Judas just had sat in the upper room and dipped his hand You know what that was? Intimacy. Does anybody else in here eat off each other's forks? I would suggest that you probably don't do that except with people that you're intimate with on some level. If you're just one of those people that just picks up a fork and eats, I just don't want to eat with you. My wife hates to eat or drink. She won't. But then the kids say, well, you do that with daddy. And she says, well, I kiss him. What does that mean? I'm intimate with him. I'm close with him. I'm okay with that. How does Judas betray Jesus? It's intimate. It's coming from someone it should never come from. Betrayal comes. How many have ever been betrayed? We sit there and we understand the hurt of betrayal, don't we? But what we need to do is we need to see ourselves in Judas. We're not meant to come away from the text and just say, bad, bad, bad Judas. We're meant to come away from the text and say, that's me. I am the one created in the image and likeness of God, a child of God, a son of God, a creation of God, loved by God, for God so loved the world. And what do we do? We rebelled against him. We sinned against him. We marred his image. We hated his name. You say, oh, I never did that. No, no, if you've sinned, that's what you've done. We betrayed him. We should have followed him. We should have loved him. We should have been willing to sacrifice for him. We're far more intimate with swords and spears than we are with the Savior. What does betrayal show us? Just like Judas, he was far more intimate with swords and with spears than with the Savior. And that's what brings Jesus' question into play, doesn't it? What does he say? What in the world are you doing, Judas? You're coming with swords and spears? And staves, what what are you coming to me like this for? You know what he calls him in another gospel? Friend. Friend. Hey, friend, what are you doing? What does he do? He lets Judas come close to him. He lets Judas kiss him. He lets Judas identify him. And in doing so, what does Jesus do? He allows himself to be identified with a sinner, a betrayer, an evil enemy. He gives himself association with, later on we're going to see 
that Peter is not willing to associate himself or align himself with Jesus. But we see this betrayal and this intimacy. Listen, if we're not careful in our humanity, in our fallen nature, in our state, in Christians, in our flesh, which we still battle with, if we're not careful, we're far more intimate with vengeance than we are with forgiveness. You see Christians who struggle to forgive people who have wronged them, and they're far more intimate. They want the sword. They want the sword. They don't want justice. How many know killing does not create uh, correct killing? It doesn't. Murder does not cr- correct murder. What do you say? What did grandma used to say to us? Two wrongs don't make a... What are we trying to teach? That's not justice. It's not justice when you punch the person that punched you. It's not justice. It's vengeance. And what does God tell us in Romans? Vengeance is mine. I will what? Repay, saith the Lord. And then he says to us, therefore, because vengeance is mine, he says, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. What does he say? Justice is when I allow the one that hurt me to be warmed and filled and fed by my hand. Oof. How in the world can we do that? Well, we're going to get there. But notice the character of betrayal. We sense the injustices in our life. We feel justified to make others pay for them, even if it means betraying those that we love. We see the betrayal in Judas. Number two, what do we see in the characters? Well, we have the young man, this this naked young man streaking through the streets. What's he doing? This young man who comes and he's kind of lightly covering himself. He's got a garment on him that makes him socially acceptable, but underneath there's a problem, isn't he? He forgot to put something underneath, didn't he? he he's not properly covered. I don't know if in his haste, scholars believe that this is John Mark, that John Mark is actually here referring to himself because it's not in the other Gospels. He's actually saying, hey, I was in the garden because he's trying to point to us and say, we also need to see ourselves in the garden as characters. And ashamed. How many know that it's not easy to come out and say, that was me. That was who I was. That's what I did. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have confession. We have him saying, hey, listen, that was me. And then we have the other disciples. Sum it up with me. Look at verse number 50. At the end of verse 49, we read it. The scriptures must be what? Fulfilled. The scriptures must be what, church? Fulfilled. They must be. This is not an option. How many know it's not an option? The scriptures must be fulfilled. And in what ways are they fulfilled? Are you still with me? Verse 50. Read it with me. And they all forsook him and fled. Is this a fulfillment of prophecy? Yes. It's a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus references later. But Jesus was despised. He was rejected. He was abandoned. He was betrayed by those that he loved, but he was abandoned by those, hey, listen, that claimed they would die with him. They all fled from him. They all ran from him. And this man, he runs away even at the cost of his own guilt and shame. He's saying, hey, listen, I don't care if I'm exposed. I'm still running. I don't care if I'm naked and cold and destitute. I'm running. Fleeing into the darkness away from Jesus, he runs without his outer garment. And we've been abandoned by others. And so we see no value in being judged for doing the same. And as soon as a relationship is going to cost us, 
We run away in naked shame. You know what some people do? After they've been hurt. So this is why sometimes relationships don't work the way that they should. I got hurt in another relationship. I got hurt when I was younger. Somebody did something to me, betrayed me. And so now when I'm in another relationship, as soon as that relationship starts to cost me anything, I'm willing to even run away at the cost of guilt, shame, fear, whatever else. I'm willing to run away from that relationship because I feel justified. I can run away because someone else ran away from me. So I can run away. I can run away from my problems. And listen, you know what we don't understand most of the time is we're not even running, running away from that relationship. We're really trying to run away from ourselves, aren't we? But how many have learned time and time again that no matter how far you run, you will never outrun your own sin? You will never outrun your own self. You will repeat the same behavior again and again in another relationship and another relationship, always looking for a relationship that is going to fulfill you in And the only one that can fulfill you is your relationship with Christ. But you know what you'll do? You'll run from Christ to get away from those other relationships. You'll see people do this all the time. I don't care what it's going to cost me. Even if I have to run away from the church and I have to run away from Christ and I have to run away from my testimony, I just don't want to be in this relationship anymore because it's costing me and I don't think I should have to pay because I've already been made to pay. I've been victimized. And you know what they are? They are constantly in the identity of a victim. Always the victim, always the victim, always the victim. Every relationship, the victim. Nobody wants to be in a relationship with a victim. Are you with me? Nobody. Because you're continuing to relive again and again the problems that someone else did in your life that the people that are in your life right now are not responsible for. You left one church because they hurt you. So you make the church you're a part of now pay for that because you were hurt in another church and so you're unfaithful to this one because you were on. People were unfaithful to you. So you feel justified in being unfaithful. Someone was unfaithful in a marriage relationship to you, so you feel justified in being unfaithful to that person because it was done to you. And you're trying to get away from this victim that you are, but you cannot run from it, you cannot hide from it, you cannot change it, you cannot alter it. You are running away naked in the dark in shame. But you're running away from the one that can bring you life. Forgiveness. And notice this abandonment. But the third character that we see is the character of Peter. And Peter represents to us what? Denial. Denial. How many of you are still with me today? You've experienced betrayal. You've experienced abandonment. You've experienced denial. And what is denial? Well, denial begins with behaving rashly to prove others wrong. Right? What did... Peter do? He was so bent on proving who wrong? Jesus. What did Jesus say to him? Peter, you're going to deny me. But be encouraged because that's going to change. You're not going to be, you're not going to go down in history as the denier. Judas goes down in history as the betrayer. Peter doesn't go down in history as the denier. Peter goes down in history as the martyr who who is willing to die upside down on a cross, feeling himself unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus died, as an old man. Peter doesn't go down in history as a denier, and Jesus tells him that. Listen, hey, Peter, I love you, but the devil's coming after you. He's coming after you hard. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to completely obliterate your life. But understand this. I'm going to change you. 
you're going to repent. Listen, how, how many are so close to where you once were, you're a new believer, and you sense and feel who you were before salvation? And listen, it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. I hope you still have a sense and feel of who you were before you became a believer, before you were changed by Jesus Christ. But the courage and the hope that we have is sanctification, isn't it? We will not always be this way. We're going to be changed. And it's a guarantee, church, guarantee. Those that he justifies, he will sanctify. He that hath begun a good work in you is faithful to what, church? You're not happy? Is faithful to what, church? Come on, wives, what are you so upset with that your husbands never do with those jobs, those handy jobs at home? They never. How many know that a job started but not finished is more discouraging than a job not started? You with me? I'd rather you not start than start and not finish. I'd rather you not start the race than quit in the middle. Just don't even get in the race. You know the most discouraging thing about Christians is when they start to run and follow Jesus and stop. It's more devastating than if they had not started at all. It devastates the church. It's why the devil loves to come in and discourage believers and get them back in and get them unfaithful. Why? Because now it's a pox on Christianity. Oh, you're changed? Look at you. You're behaving just like you used to. How many are ashamed of that, like I am? But how many are encouraged that that is not how you're going to be forever? He will finish the job. And that's why we need to be patient with each other when we fall and when we quit. And we need to be quick to restore and forgive because God is finishing the job that he started in every believer in this room. He is finishing it. And we have this idea of denial in our heads and we think it's going to define us because I've denied. Listen, have you ever denied the name of Jesus? Let's be honest. Have you ever denied him? You're sitting in a fire... Oh, why do you live your life like uh, why, why do you live your life like you do? Well, you know, I'm just a good guy. You don't live your life the way you do because you're a good guy. You live the life the way that you do because you've been changed by Christ and you were a wicked sinner. And Jesus came into your life and changed you. Why are you trying to act like you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and made yourself a more moral, upstanding citizen, family man? Are you with me? You're not a family man because you're a good guy. You're a family man because Jesus got in your heart and changed you. Are you with me? You're not a good mom because you just love your kids so much and you're self-sacrificial. You're a good mom because Jesus changed your heart. We're not good because we tried harder and did better. We're good because God made us good. Are you with me? We deny him every time we take the glory from him. Mm. I say that because I do it. Are you with me? We deny him every time we take the glory from him. Good message, pastor. Oh, thank you. I'm so, such a good pastor. No. Good word. Good spirit. Good God. Broken messenger. Broken vessel. Belonging in the trash heap. What did Paul say? I belong in the trash heap. I don't belong to be able to speak the name of Christ. I was the chiefest of sinners. I persecuted the church. I'm ashamed of who I was, but I put those things behind me. But not only do I put the things behind me that I'm ashamed of, I put the things behind me that I'm proud of. Ooh. What did he do? Remember we talked about that in Philippians. He tipped over and then smashed his trophy case, didn't he? 
He went to the trophy case, Pharisee of Pharisees, of the stock of Israel. Oh, I sat at the feet of Gamil. I'm educated. I have, I have Roman citizenship. I'm respected. I have money. I have power. Zealous. And then what do you do? He grabbed that trophy case and threw it down, and then he smashed all the trophies. He said, those things that were gained to me, I count as loss to the excellency of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we want to forget about our sins, but we don't want to forget about who we thought we were good when we were good. And Paul said, everything that's good about me is because of Jesus, and I stomp on all those things that I thought were good about me before Christ. And we see ourselves. We're the deniers. We struggle with betrayal. We struggle with abandonment. We struggle with denial. But then we see, number three, the Christ. You still with me? Isn't this the most important person to see? We see the Christ. Jesus stands before now. He's carried away. Notice Judas is like, take him with swords and staves, but take him safely. What did Judas think was going to happen? that they were going to just safely carry him away and lock him up. I think Judas in his heart didn't want to see Jesus crucified, but I think Judas in his heart knew what was coming. But he was willing to betray him. He was willing to sell him. What, for 30 pieces of silver? Did it bring satisfaction to Judas's life? What do we see him doing with the silver? Take it back! What did he want to do? He wanted to take back what he did. But he couldn't take it back. But he could have allow Jesus to take it up. But he didn't. He went out and hung himself in shame, didn't he? Did he have to die that way? No, he chose to die that way. But that the prophecy in the scriptures might be fulfilled. Hey, listen, it was already in the books. We know this was coming. Jesus spoke of it. And Jesus stands in, now he's being accused. Being accused for what? for being the one that betrayed, for being the one that abandoned, for being the one that denied. Jesus is being accused of all of what other people have done and they can't get their, they can't get their witnesses to agree. They don't even agree with each other. Why? Because they're false. Jesus wasn't guilty of any of it. But notice the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus answers not in defense of himself for the crimes he's accused of, but rather he's just quiet. The accusations are false, but they're all true of us. But he must become the perpetrator of our crimes if we're ever going to see justice restored. So Jesus says, I'm willing to be the perp. I'm willing to be the criminal. I'm willing to take the rap. You've all run away. You're altogether beyond profitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one, but I will stand like a lamb and go to the slaughter with my mouth closed. And I'll take it all. You know, in the Old Testament, when they took that lamb and they they put the sin on that lamb, what did they do? They applied the sin of the community to that lamb. You know that lamb had no defense for itself? That lamb couldn't speak. That That lamb just accepted it, didn't even know what was going on. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus is standing there knowing everything that's taking place and he's taking all of our punishment. A lot of people say, well, Jesus didn't answer because that wasn't true what they said. Maybe so, but I believe Jesus didn't answer because he wasn't going to defend it. He was just going to take it. He said, I'm willing to take it. You want to call me a liar? I'll take it. You want to call me heretic? I'll take it. Call me what you'll call me. I'll take it. Because that's what he was there to take, wasn't he? He was there to take our sins on himself. He was willing to be forsaken 
not only by his friends, but by his father. On the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. He's left alone. He's left without anyone to stand in his defense, and he won't even defend himself. And the one that could have called a legion of angels to his side at any moment, who could have come off the cross just like he came out, are you with me? Who could have come off the cross just like he came out of the tomb, who raised himself up from the dead, allowed himself to be laid down for us. He willingly went to be accused and killed on our behalf. What does that do? Brings justice, doesn't it? Because God can't look at our sins and say, oh, I love you, you get off. You don't have to pay for those. He has to be just, doesn't he? He has to do what's right. He has to do what's holy. It would have never worked for God to just say, I forgive you, even though justice hasn't been restored. Hey, how many know that's what we struggle with? We struggle with forgiving people who we don't see justice being restored. We don't see how it's made right. How many know there's no reality to forgiveness unless we see how the situation is made right? In the church, how do we restore people? What do they need to do? Repent. What is that? Justice. Repentance allows us to forgive, doesn't it? Because when I repent, I'm saying I am willing to change my mind, to be, listen, to fall on, if you would, the sword, because I understand Jesus already fell on the sword for me. He's already paid for it. And I can be forgiven. And listen, as a church, you know what we can do? We don't say, make that guy pay. We just say, no, forgive him. Come on, if the, if the person who's done the worst thing to you walked through the doors, through Christ, through Christ, that person could be made whole and restored. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, you don't believe in an all-powerful, all-sufficient blood of Jesus. Can the blood of Jesus Christ save and change the vilest of sinners? Can it make them clean? John Newton, the slave trader, the one who's dragged keelhold under the ship time and time again, hated, hated, a vile, wicked man. He pens amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What had he had done? Hurt people, killed people, enslaved people. He had done so many injustices, but he was saying, I found justice at the cross because I've been restored. I was the perpetrator, but he became the perpetrator on my behalf. He was the, he, I was the criminal, but he became the criminal on my behalf. He was made to be sin for me who knew no sin that I would be made righteous. Why would anybody turn away from that deal? Well, they don't believe God. They don't believe what he says about them. Verse 62, he opens his mouth to answer, not to defend himself, but to identify himself. This is important. This is important. He doesn't defend himself. He identifies himself. They say all these evil things about him, false things about him. He doesn't answer. When does he answer? Are you the Christ? What does he say? Church, what does he say? I am. I am. Why? Because he needed to identify himself as being just and the justifier. He needed to say, hey, listen, you know who I am. 
you are killing the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, but I'm the Lamb of God that are going to take away the sins of the world. I am. And guess what? He's saying to them, you see the Lamb, but one day you're going to see the Lion. You see the Lamb, but one day you're going to see the Lion. Isn't that what he says? Look at verse 62. I am, and what? Ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. One day they're going to look on him who they pierced. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. Hey, listen, the ones that falsely accused him, all of us, we are going to look on him and we are going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Hey, listen, what are, what are Christians going to say? Worthy, worthy, worthy of all praise, of worship, of glory and majesty and honor and power, be unto the king. Hey, when Jesus comes back, is he going to be like a lamb in the, uh, in the animal stable like he was when he was born? Isn't it interesting he was born in a stable and he's the lamb? What's he coming back as? The lion, the king of kings, the lord of lords, coming in glory, eyes of fire, power. That's our God, by the way. He's coming back and he's saying, I want to identify who I am because you need to know who you're killing. You need to know who you're killing. Hey, if they had any doubt in their minds, he wanted them to know who he was. I am. Listen, was he afraid to identify himself in the garden? Who did, who did Judas say? Hey, this is Jesus. Okay, let's take him. Hey, who are you? Are you the son of God? Yep, I'm the son of God. What did they want him to do? To blaspheme so they could punch him, so they could beat him, so they could have cause to take up arms against him. But he says this, church, are you with me? Justice is coming. What are the implications? Real quick, we're going to wrap it all up. How does it apply to us? Number one, there's a realization of identity. A realization of identity. We can realize that full and complete forgiveness is never found in trying harder, doing good, or changing ourselves. It is only found in our, if our lives are in Christ. If he has been guilty of and died for our sins, his blood must be applied to my sinful condition. And now my identity is wrapped up in him because he became me so I could become him. That's the easiest way to say that verse. He became me so that I could become him. And now I've become him in Jesus. So now my identity is in Jesus. So the accusers come. Hey, listen, how many have been victimized? Can I help you today? That's not your identity. Don't go through life as a victim because you're not a victim. You're not a victim. Yes, people have betrayed you. Yes, people have abandoned you. Yes, people have denied you. They have walked away from you. They have left you alone. But that is not your identity. You need to come away from that. Hey, listen, Rahab was no longer a harlot. It's Rahab the just. Lot's no longer the wicked man, Lot, but Lot the just. How does that happen? Because our identity is not in what we've done or in what's been done to us. Our identity is in what he's done and what he did for us. That's our identity. If your identity is in what people have done to you, you need to stand in the identity that Christ has given you today. You need to realize that identity. Number two, there's a real hope. There's a realization of identity, but there's a real hope. We can have hope by placing our faith in God's eternal plan to restore justice and righteousness again on the earth. Justice is coming. How can I have hope? Because I cannot see it, but it's coming. I can believe it. Are you with me? Faith is the substance of things 
hoped for. Anybody in here like me hope for justice one day? Anybody hope for peace? Jared does. We hope for justice. We hope for peace. But listen, we will never have it, will we? Except for Jesus come and bring it to us. But do we have hope? The hope of his coming? The blessed hope, the great God, of, of he's going to appear, the Bible says, Jesus Christ is going to appear. That's our blessed hope. And how do we get through life where injustice is? By believing that justice is coming. That Jesus is coming. Jesus is justice. Are you with me? Jesus is justice. A real hope. And then number three, a restful present. A restful present. How many are tired of being restless, depressed, discouraged, without hope? If you're living that way as a Christian, you're not meant to. If you're living that way as a Christian, you're not meant to. You're choosing it. You are choosing hopelessness and you're choosing restlessness because Christ has already chosen rest and peace for you. You say, well, I can't have it. It's, it's outside of my grasp. No, no. It's in resting in him that we find rest. It's in hoping in him that we find hope. It's at living in him we find life. Are you with me today? We can rest. We can know that our past betrayals our past abandonments, our present denials don't define who we are or dictate who we will be. How many ever see somebody and they say, that person's going to be just like their... Don't pass judgment. Are you with me? How many are glad? (laughs) I'm so glad that because of Christ, mom and dad said, we're not going to be like our parents. Our home, their, their homes were broken. Their homes were destroyed. Their homes were filled with hate and yelling and screaming and abuse. You know what they said? Jesus changed us. We don't have to be like where we came from. We're not destined to be like our parents. We're destined to be like Jesus. Are you with me? Some of us were so discouraged because we look at the people in our lives, what they've done to us and how they've led us, and we say, I'm going to be just like. No, you don't have to be just like because you were made as a believer to be just like Jesus. And you are no longer wrapped up in that. And guess what? You can have peace, the peace that passes all understanding that keeps your heart and mind through Jesus. And you know what? If you're worrying this morning, you're choosing to worry. If you're distressed, you're choosing to distress. If you're all caught up and I don't know, I don't know, I can't, I can't, I can't, and I can't fix this, you're right. You can't fix it. But rest is in Jesus. And you don't have to be in that existence. Well, I don't like what's happened to me. and You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the trial that I'm bearing. I don't, but he does. And he promises you peace. And he promises you rest. You believe he's able to give it to you? Lastly, a reality in forgiveness. This is the big point. Because some of us, we have not yet forgiven. And that's why we can't have any more healthy relationships in our lives. Because we haven't forgiven. You will never have a healthy relationship, humanly speaking, until you have realized your forgiveness in Jesus and offered that same forgiveness to humanity. What's the parable that Jesus gives? The one that was forgiven of much, unable to forgive those that owed him little. In contrast to what we owe God, nobody owes us. Are you with me? In contrast to what I owe God, nobody owes me. If everybody pays me what they owe me, can I pay God? (laughs) Are you with me? 
If I go out and collect, some of you owe me money, I know. You borrowed from me and never gave it back. I'm keeping track. I got a book. What's happened? We're living this debt-debtor relationship, and we try to collect, 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 collect from everyone. We never forgive them. We never forgive them. And then what do we say? We're forgiven. No, you don't understand forgiveness. You don't understand forgiveness. You will never collect enough from the people that owe you in order to pay God what you owe him. It will never happen. You can work your life, your whole life, making people pay you back for what they did to you, but you will never pay God back for what you did to him. But here's the joy. Jesus has completely and fully forgiven you of that debt. And now you don't have to, you don't have to owe anybody but to love. And nobody has to owe you but to love. Isn't that the great thing about life? I, I can forgive because I've been forgiven, but here's the reality. Because I can never forgive unless I see justice at hand. Are you with me? Where's the repentance? I've heard people say this all the time. I can never forgive unless they repent. You can forgive without their repentance because you can know that it's fully and completely going to be made just in the day in the world to come. It's going to be made, it's going to be made right. Are we supposed to live in the now and be carnal-minded or to be heavenly-minded and live in the future? We're to be eternal in our mindset, meaning whatever someone's done, even if they haven't repented of it, I can still forgive them for it because in the future, justice is coming. Not vengeance, justice. All will be made right. For believers that have wronged me, I'm going to be forever in heaven with them. It's a sad thing when believers can't forgive other believers because of what they did to each other. And they say, oh, I can never, you're going to spend eternity with those people. You are not going to hold grudges against them. You are hurting yourself by not forgiving. And you're revealing your ignorance about the forgiveness you have in Jesus. Or the fact that maybe you've never received it yourself. We can forgive those who have brought injustice into our lives, not by pretending what they've done holds no weight and can be easily forgotten, but by believing that what they did to us has no hold on us because all would be made right by Jesus. Do you trust Jesus today? You say, well, I trust Jesus, but I don't trust other people. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Don't put your confidence in men. Don't put your confidence in your own flesh. But you can trust Jesus. And you know what Jesus says to you? Forgive them. How many times? Until you can't keep count anymore. Just forgive them. What did he say to us? If we confess our sins, you still with me? If we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful, and where's the word? Just. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. How many know that it's not fair that God forgives you every time you sin? But it's just. And it's just because of Jesus. And it can only be made right if you have Jesus in your life. And can I say this? Not Jesus, just Jesus in your life. That Jesus is your life. You don't have life apart from him. Neither do I. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.